Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of cream liqueur slash amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your host, who's currently pouring some sort of drink that looks strongly alcoholic. Gabriel Krauser. Uh, welcome back. We, uh, Dude, this we is not week. strongly alcoholic. This is just I, regular... I can't see what the bottle is. Bells. I'm well, pouring myself you know, the bells. It's literally at the legal limit. It's one of those weeks... Where I feel no rubbish, rubbish. This is, <laughs> it's at the civil limit. The legal limit is where I have had straw rum is like, um, like 30, 40, 50 percent stronger than bells, than whiskey. Yeah, general. I don't know. Look, I'm not an expert on this, but um, I do know that uh, you know, you don't tend to get much more commercially available liquor than oh, 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 fancy. We're adding. Adding soda water to it. I, you know, I've. That's such a great sound, actually. It sound is, the, dude. It's the, Friday. The it's this... <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I suppose that means strap yourselves in because, you know, Gabriel's going to get progressively more uh, exciting as the episode goes on. We've done episodes where there was a lot of whiskey involved, and I must say, I'm not sure if that was the greatest idea ever. But, uh, no, I think there's I think there's a too much whiskey <laughs> point. Uh, I think we stretched beyond that point and have learned the too be... the too much whiskey episode was the one with the where we said that South Africa should build pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, maybe also not. the best. Um... <laughs> I stand by. It was your idea? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'll back um, you. I'll fact, back you. I'll I'll jump on that. If, if the police come, I will take responsibility. Uh, if need be. I, I remember my father my father shouting at me for that one uh at the end he said yeah yeah you sounded a bit drunk by the end but uh, you know whatever <laughs> no I, I i think we'll we'll keep care of that but i do think it's been a long week um and in some mm, ways especially for you because you've been cavorting around the whole nation uh you were in our get may i go on a tangent here yes our judicial capital, Bloemfontein. It sits in a... So this is, of course, it was made in 1910, one of the sort of capitals to kind of... Because South Africa's always been a, a some kind of power-sharing agreement between numerous factions, right? This has always been the... the it's always been a South polygamous Africa. marriage, like a monogamous yeah. marriage between seven parties. Right, right. And and it's it baked into the DNA and the fact that we have three capitals, right? Uh, one in the British colony of the Cape and two in the uh, uh, um, the Boer one Republic. One in each independent Boer Republic. Right. So we've got our judicial capital in Bloemfontein, but nowadays it really feels kind of awkward because it's got this, this very important court there, but arguably it's not the most important court, right? Because the constitutional court is in Johannesburg. And so we've got this odd legislative capital where we have just parliament in Cape Town, uh, uh, the, most of the normal capital functions in Pretoria, and then Bloemfontein is kind of left now in this awkward position where it can say, well, we're the judicial capital. What does that mean? And we have the second highest court in the land. I mean, poor Bloemfontein. I don't know. Shouldn't they have built the constitutional court in Bloemfontein? It's also got two names. So I don't know that it is the council we went down with or that we joined to be there in Bloom on Monday to go to the Supreme Court of Appeal. 
said that it's no longer the judicial capital. And okay. I think the 17th constitutional amendment, which is the, the last one that actually went through, changed uh, the structure between the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Concord and made the Concord the apex court in all matters. Before right. that, our court system was a little bit like Russia, which has a Supreme Court and a constitutional court. And the thought there is, as it was here, that if there is a case that is to be decided on basically purely a point of legal interpretation and with a text that needs legal interpretation of the constitution, then you go to the constitutional court. So they're like, they have a, a real speciality and, and the clues in the name. Uh, their speciality is, is interpreting one particular text. So if the con court is, is higher, does that mean that Joburg is sort of a capital? Exactly. So and and that changed. And so I, now the court was the highest. So Joburg is now I, the financial. I would like to point out that uh, gov.za, you know, which is the official government website, still lists mm -hmm. Bloemfontein as a judicial capital. Well, look, I like the sound of that. Um, council might have made a mistake, but I, but I think it's more likely that the. No, I trust. Yeah, I trust the, your council far more than the government's website. <laughs> 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 Me too. Um, yeah, dude, Bloom, it is, it is kind of sad. My childhood memories, I've got quite strong childhood memories of Bloom because when I was about eight or nine years old, sort of late nineties, my mother was invited. She had an exhibition at Ulivenhuis, which is the national gallery in Bloom. And it's a beautiful, it's, it really is. If I compare it to the Tatham in Peter Maritzburg and the um, Iziko in Cape Town and the Johannesburg Art Gallery and in Joburg and the, and the Durban one, I can't even remember. It, I would say Ulivenhuis is in, is in a, is the best preserved. Um, it has always had an enthusiastic staffing, including when I was there on Monday. I showed up sort of in the middle of a staff meeting. Uh, Tuesday, I popped into Levenhays th this week. There was a, there were like a, a contingent of, of 20 people standing in one of the main exhibition rooms, sort of talking about the month lying ahead. They saw me come and they said, no, you just go about your business, watch what you want, and we're going to continue our meeting and talking about the shows. And, the, and, and I don't know, the staff just all seemed engaged and curious and... Um, uh, asking one another intelligent questions. It uh, just the fact that there is such a large staff contingent is unlike um, the sort of tragically dormant uh, some of the tragically dormant uh, Transvaal galleries. Right. Um, and the Cape one is active, but curatorially. I, I, I think uh, quite weak sometimes. Whereas this, whereas, the, whereas this gallery, it's well hung. Good works are chosen. It's not. Um, I'm not saying every show is perfect, but anyway. So I think there's a lot to say for it. Anyway, so in the late '90s, I was there. My mom, um, uh, work was being exhibited there, and she had been invited to come as an artist in residence, which basically meant sort of sitting in the gallery with a model in one of the rooms, painting that model as the days go by for three, four a month or whatever it is. So then people can come in and basically you're turning part of the gallery into a studio 
so that high school students, primary school students, art students at university, adults, anyone can come in and partake in a sense of, of what it looks like to actually have a have a timeless, genuinely like a masterpiece be created. What does that look like? Yeah, you get mm. the country's top portrait painter to to sit and do this in this That's kind really of public cool. way. Yeah, it was amazing. And I was a kid and I was hanging out there uh, and I had very fond memories of Bloom. Going back now, it's, it seems a lot smaller. It feels a little bit like <laughs> like going back to my primary school and realizing the desks were are now like barely come to my knee. Somehow the whole <laughs> city seems uh, more squeezed in together. Um, and, I, and I do think that uh that the that the look zoomer's crowd also seemed a lot smaller <laughs> right so so let's let's talk about why you were there perhaps uh which is that you're part of this thing and we we've advertised it in various times on the show in fact i think we even did an episode about it two ago but you were there to to basically say look there's been a problem in the interpretation of the law regarding this whole Zuma medical parole thing and actually it should never have gone to the parole board at all. Is that, that was the argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not so, that it shouldn't look, it could have gone to the medical parole board if the court so chose. But if Zuma, the court chose, right. But it was if up Zuma to the court. If wants to get out of jail, he mustn't go to the executive. He must go to the judiciary. Right. That's right. his route. Yeah. Uh, so what happened during the trial? Cause you were there with, um, with many of South Africa's famous or infamous characters, uh, I believe Carl Niehaus was in attendance. <laughs> Dude, Carl Niehaus has, I, I, he has actual Versace reading glasses. <laughs> Did that guy, that guy needed, in the needed, needed for a revolution, you know? Oh, in the flesh, he was looking dapper. And it doesn't quite translate. Somehow, he does not have a face made for TV, that chap. <laughs> like, no matter how, how he dresses it up, on TV, he just looks a little bit silly, I suppose. And it might have to do something to do with um, his, his, his past behavior. But look, it was, it, it was a very interesting crowd. Um, Carl Niehaus. The, the, first people, the first two people I saw, or three, were Carl Niehaus and Dali Mpofu, and Sizwe Mpofu Walsh. <laughs> so sort of the trifecta of malevolent influences on South African politics. Well, I'd, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that they all professionally are not helping. Uh, they're, they're hurting more than they're helping. But it was so nice to bump into Sizwe, who is my childhood friend, um, and with whom... Who, who nowadays I, denounces us as... as you know, the reason that the, if the ANC loses power, the great terrible thing is that the IRR might have some influence over government. <laughs> Look, he put it better than that. He said, if the ANC gets voted on and the coalition gets voted in, the IRR will basically be running the country. And he gets it. From his lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyways, so it was nice to see Cesar. And there was Ace Mahashule as well. It was odd when they were all sitting in a row. Not all in a row, but and then there was uh, Karen Morgan. Who's what is, what is we're doing Maverick. there? So, I mean, uh, Carl Niehaus was there because he's just you know, he's on the Zuma train until he mm. dies, I suppose. And Dalian Porfu was there because he's a lawyer involved in the case. Yeah, he's representing Zuma. Uh, Cesar right. said that he was there as a law student. Um, 
He's with a, a, a has got his is a professor at Wits now, sort of junior professor, I think. Um, uh, but 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 he said he was there as a law student um, to understand how things were going. Um, I said I was there as a law student as well because, of course, I don't have any kind of law degree. Um, but right. Uh, and then there was John Steenhuisen and Salias Brunk. Um, really was I didn't realize Steenhuisen was there as well. Indeed, and Jimmy Manier. and I spoke to all of these people, excepting for Carl Newhouse. Um, I had a quick chat with Ace. Uh, quick chat with John, with <laughs> How's with Ace Seaswick, feeling these days? How's, how's Ace Makashule looking these days? Dude, Ace Makashule looks 10 years younger than he looked 10 years ago. How is that possible? <laughs> I, you I think, think that it would be the other direction, right? That he'd be feeling a bit of the weight of, of life being a bit tough these days. Yeah, no, I, there was something of a contrast in the sense that, like, on the ground, it was amazing how small Zuma's entourage and crowd and crowd were sort of the entourage inside the court and the crowd outside of the court for the protesting for the cameras. It was more or less the same size. Like I think there were two extra people outside. Um, it was also surprising. I must admit how many white people were there to support Zuma. Um, I, 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 I try not to index um, things to race, uh, but sometimes like I told the story once I was in a subway in Russia and I and I and I couldn't figure out which was the right stop, and I asked someone, and they said no English, and and I was very desperate and in a rush, and I was like, "There's a black person. I have never seen a black person in Moscow before. I'll bet he speaks English," and he did, and he helped me, and it was fine. Uh, so every now and then, there just is just a moment when when really should try and avoid it. I suppose we all we, I think we all really do most of the time, but now and then it stands out, and it stood out to me that like half the crowd was white. Which is not that many people. It's like a crowd of of maybe eight people, but four of them. <laughs> Us, excluding mm. the entourage. That's interesting. Um, also mm. interesting, and and it seems to indicate that Zoomers, um, in terms well, of the it's a reminder that uh, the the members of the race nationalist uh, 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 legions are not necessarily, you know, the race that they're supposedly promoting. Yeah, you cannot index ideas to to skin color. The the people who, right. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but so I do think it it reminded me a bit of Sienna Carl, the 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 court case, the the bail hearing I went to that instance just to report, um, with a group of IRR chaps. Would you come to Sienna Carl? No, you hold that you hold down the the home base. But we yeah, Gabriel, we so. travel places. Come on now. <laughs> Yeah, you you might move to the Karoo, but but traveling, no, no, no. Well, that's just so that people can't make me go to things in Joburg. <laughs> like a, it's like a, for one day I'll invest the whole day in driving so that I don't have to. I like it. So, but so at Sienekal, the surprising thing was there were about eight thousand EFF people, uh, almost all bust in, um, and then the sort of. Anyway, various groups, but the ANC group was sort of like a dozen people, and one of them wearing an Ace Machashule cape. Uh, and I asked him if he would stand for a photo, and he said, "Go back to Australia." Um, okay, <laughs> there's a number of problems with that one. Um, but, <laughs> but did you say but, an Ace Machashule cape? 
dude, a whole cape. I want that. I want. I, I took really a photo so that. that I could. That's oh, so much was, better than than a shirt. That's like twenty thousand times better than a shirt. It really was. <laughs> but but the point is that 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 there's very thin on the ground support for the anti Ramaphosa faction. Well, well, we. we but saw at the that same time, when... Ace is looking much younger because I think he's not so stressed. So it's oh, like maybe, comfortable maybe. in that very thin rank. Um, wasn't 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 it? I mean, uh, I seem to remember a story back from when Ace was suspended as Secretary General. Uh, he tried to organize a march uh, to the Tuli House with with his supporters, and like ten people showed up, and most of them were marshals. So, so yeah. they cancelled it and went home. <laughs> but he's looking so comfy and so happy. And I'm the head of the Zuma Foundation, Jimmy. Oh, that guy. We had well, such a nice the, he he's the leader so of, of ATM these days, isn't he? I'm not actually sure who the leader of ATM is, but he's a senior figure in ATM. He's a senior figure in ATM. And ATM Which does is, great work. Sometimes. <laughs> Did they do um, great legal work? I really... I, 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 yeah, let me say that ATM is a great example of, I think, why the Zuma faction remains uh, uh, relevant. Because they don't have the money, they don't have the support... No one really likes them. They're discredited. They have all these problems, but they punch well above their weight. Uh, and I think ATM is a great example of that. You know, it's a small party, and yet it still manages to get seats all over the place. In these last couple of elections, it's gotten a couple of seats all over the place. Uh, it, it, it It's a big mover in parliament. It constantly is trying to hold no confidence motions against Robert yeah. Pauls. I think it's currently yeah. doing that. Yeah, it holds right up the moment. whole thing by trying to make no confidence motions. <laughs> and yeah, it mean, goes to court. It's, the, it's, the, it's far more active than the vast majority of quote-unquote opposition parties. It makes really good arguments in court. It's used Katz yeah. uh, as its senior counsel. He's a really good guy. He stepped down from the, the Cape Town bar, Cape bar, which is probably generally a good idea in some ways. Anyway, they they uh, I, I should just say that the, 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 the crowd outside did have Ramaphosa must fall save zuma posters which i love i i really i'm i'm sure they were printed out you know when you print out these laminated posters you've got to use a company or a postnet or something like that i wish i could have been there when the when the it was just so satisfying seeing those things i imagine the person who was like working on the typesetting at a, at a certain stage just having this realization of what they're doing um because Ramaphosa must fall is like a line that has always been, as soon as a person's name is associated with euphoria, you know there's going to be a hangover. Like after Ramaphoria, at some stage, there was going to be Rama, Rama must fall. It, it just works too well to not happen. Um, but the fact that it that we haven't done any better than the next bit being Zuma must rise, like... We, we, it's the circle is so small, it's so tight. It's so, <laughs> I wanted to see what, what, um, what Jimmy Money's, uh, <laughs> what his position at ATM is. So I went to look for their website just as you were talking there. Yeah. And the first link I got for ATM SA.org, yeah. Uh, the, the, the antivirus blocked as a phishing attempt, attempt has been detected on this page. Oh, no. Then I went to the Wikipedia page and I clicked uh, atmmovement.org, which is on Wikipedia listed as their official 
uh, uh, webpage, and it took me to a gambling website. <laughs> oh no, that's not good. <laughs> this is this is one of I can't that's think a... of a better better online presence for ATM. <laughs> <laughs> Fishing detected, gambling projected. <laughs> <laughs> that's very worrying but they look I, I i did feel kind of bad because I, I i said to jimmy um that i was very impressed by dolly and porfu because we were there from like, like nine in the morning till seven at night court usually closes at three or four you know it's usually like 10 to 4 10 to 3 but they kept but pushing sorry. until seven at night uh, jimmy Manya is the chief of policy and strategy for the atm okay it kept going till ten and at, until seven at night, um, and partly that's because the Democratic Alliance and Afri Forum and the Helen Sussman Foundation said that they were not going to repeat themselves because they were all there to argue that Zuma must go back to jail, um, and they said we're going to divvy up the arguments, but they didn't really divvy up the arguments. They kind of all made all of the arguments over and over again, so that was a bit of a waste of time. But really, the, uh, the, the, the biggest drag on time was Dolly and Porfu, who said, can I have another two minutes and then turn it into 20 about seven times, uh, sort of running joke. Uh, he took be... like two hours, three hours more than is a lot of time. So we were there for a very long time. Reminds me of how the ANC, uh, uh, when they're not really keen on a council meeting going ahead, they do this. I did this all the time when I was in the Joburg Council, is you'd say, ah, oh, we need a caucus break for 20 minutes. And then the caucus break would be three hours. <laughs> and they do that over and over yeah, But and over dude, this again. was not a break. This was Dali waxing lyrical, just sometimes making sense, sometimes always making theater. Um, and, and it was amazing. So I said to Jimmy, I was like, well done. You, you guys like did a 12 round did a did a boxing 12 round like thriller and then did another 12 rounds right after that um it's uh, their stamina is extraordinary and then uh 20 minutes later when Dali and Porfu came out a lady said Dali 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 you have to meet this guy he looks like Jesus and he tells the truth he said you beat them in 24 rounds <laughs> and I thought ah it's almost what i said it's not. I didn't. I said you were you were beating at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, slight difference. I'm not. But but look, there was. I think it is remarkable. I had the same thing when I went. To, I was reminded very much of when I went to Parliament with Martin Brassy, senior counsel, who who helped us get the idea, who gave us the idea, really, to go to court this time. This argument that just it just turns out that there's criminal cases. There's, you know, where you go to jail for doing a normal crime. There's civil cases where you get sued. And then there's this very special thing of contempt of court where it starts out with a civil proceeding, but you can end up going to jail, which has its own rules. And the thing is to apply those rules to Zuma. Uh, and those rules bar him from parole. They, they say that if he wants to get out, he's got to go back to the court. And we, and we just need to apply those rules of this kind of case to him. That is such a simple argument, but I'm a layman. I wouldn't have thought of it. You wouldn't have thought of it. Martin thought of it. He saw it, and he came, came and brought it to us. When, when, uh, when I was early, when you and I were early at the IRR, I went down with uh, to, to, to Parliament 
to hold Martin's briefcase effectively when we made our representations to Parliament about the attempt to amend the Constitution for expropriation without compensation. We were arguing against that, and we had the most signatures of any particular petition. Martin's a very respected lawyer who in the 80s was like the top labor law lawyer in the country, represented, you know, Num, Numsa, Kusatu, you know, knew Ramaphosa very well uh, because they were on the same team battling against the Nats, uh, um, all too often unjust attempt to repress uh, civil bargaining. Um, right. But good, good, good chap. But when we went there, it was amazing how when the cameras were on, dudes were so nasty to Martin. Basically, I don't think it's unfair to say using his skin color against him. I mean, mm. everything he was saying was reasonable and 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 very important about how dangerous expropriation without compensation was. And the questions, especially coming from the EFF, but not only coming from the EFF, also coming from some ANC people who are older and should know better because they come from a real party, as it were, that has done at least some good stuff in, in its history. They were yeah, so nasty. Uh, toxic and, waste poured into the body politic like the EFF. Yeah, I don't think they were. But but then when the cameras turned off, then everyone is very nice to each other. So that is how it was at court again on Monday. That's almost always how it is. Yeah, it's and I think it's worth I, I saying say because it's, it's 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 slimy, but it's good, dude. It's so much better than the alternative, where it's, no, I, because I, it's an indication that the racism is superficial. No, I agree, but at the same time, it's also equally frustrating because you know when you see someone stand up there and basically do the racism and you know that it's a play acting thing it's also sort of phony and uh, now I, I get you i agree it's better than the alternative but man it still don't make me feel too good but and and in the case of the court it's what wasn't about racism it was about defending zuma you know die gave it his all it's amazing it is amazing it is an amazing spectacle to see i i'll, I'll say quickly something that i learned at the trial was that two things. One was that I had thought, because I'd heard Zuma's team, including, I think, Dolly, on radio and so on, and read in EWN and Daily Maverick and other places, that um, the Medical Parole Board had, died, Zoom, had denied Zuma parole, but their thing wasn't necessary up to date because... Uh, by implication, Zuma's doctors had checked his medical condition later. And so it might have been that he didn't have a terminal illness when the medical parole board checked him out. And then afterwards, some evidence shows up. You know, the, there's a spot in the scan that shows, oh, he's actually got terrible cancer or something. And those doc doctors saw it. That was, that was one of the sort of rooms for doubt that I thought was there. That's not there at all. Zuma's doctors were the ones who identified or, or claimed that he should get medical parole first. And thereafter, um, the medical parole board looked into it. And they looked into, into it with the benefit, firstly, of one of them in examining Zuma and also with the benefit of specialists at the Pretoria um, Hospital where he'd been sent to for specialist care, their reports. And it's out of that the, the latest, most up-to-date, and the most specialist evidence, um, which said he doesn't deserve medical parole, um, 
So th that was a thing to learn. I thought, oh, there was a maybe. And it's like, no, there's not. The other thing was there's a lot of redactions. So in the medical parots, uh, medical reports, I, <laughs> I, I got my vials and my I spoonerismed. I, my apologies. In the medical reports, um, a lot of it's been cokey-penned out. And so Mpofu was arguing that he might have a terminal illness and it's just been redacted to protect his dignity. And <laughs> so how can you deny him? Yeah, thing? I find that it's like, oh, guys, he's, he could be sick. Who knows? We don't know. Nobody knows. Oh, well. So there is a burden of there's an onus and a burden of evidence question there because the decision is made by Arthur Fraser to let him out. And the, and the appeal is initially brought by the DA Afri forum and Susman foundation against that. So the ones who have brought the appeal, they do have a kind of burden of evidence problem. They have to show. And if there's no evidence to show that Fraser's wrong, they're in trouble. So he was like, they can't show that he's wrong because they can't show a full medical report of Zuma that says he doesn't have a terminal illness because these reports all have the coke pen. So then it becomes a matter of reading between the lines. And the medical parole board clearly says he doesn't deserve parole. So clearly he doesn't have a terminal illness. Whereas his doctors say he does deserve parole. And so you can infer from that if they understand how the structure is supposed to work, that they think he does have a terminal illness. Here's the problem. The doctor, Zuma's doctor, filled in the wrong form. Uh, filled in the form that you're supposed to fill in and then filled in the other addendum form, which is supposed to be done by an independent person who's verifying the first form. So either they're sort of lying <laughs> or just oh, has yeah. no idea what they're doing. So, so the thought that you can infer this person knows his medical condition and also knows the law and the structure so well that if he says he deserves medical parole, the doctor could never have made the mistake of, of assuming this for uh, legally uh, mistaken. That doesn't hold water at all because the, <laughs> because the doctor filled in the wrong form. So clearly he doesn't know what he's doing legally or she. Um, so that was, that was the second thing that I learned was that, the, the, that the, there's this reduction inference problem and you don't have to doubt the doctor's medical expertise. You don't have to suppose that the doctors are lying or craven or so on. You just have to know that. Right. The he, third thing. He could just yeah. not know what it means to get medical parole. So he could say, Yes, well, because it's not his expertise. Not great, you know, he's not in great condition. Doesn't mean he's going to die anytime soon necessarily, but. He could be saying, I as a doctor think that he would, he would have less stress and that that'll extend his lifespan. If right. he's hanging out in Kandla, right, uh, and therefore which he deserves medical parole, which sounds like the kind of thing true. that a doctor should say. Yeah, like right. a Hippocratic. If you're looking after your client's health, exactly. Right. Right. So you don't have to be. It's very good to try and avoid, in the courts context, the the sort of knavish assumptions that these people are paying each other or bribing each other or lying. You could just be wrong in that kind of way. Okay, so here's the third thing, dude. I don't know if you've listened to this. Um, on the radio or read about it. But I spoke to Anthea Jeffrey, and she definitely had the same impression as me from the public reports. In terms of the law, it's all about Section 75 or 79 of the Correctional Services Act because 79 says the Medical Parole Board must decide and 75 says the commissioner must decide. 
in other words, the law has created this confusion. Um, and within that context, if it says the commissioner gets to decide, as long as it's less than two-year sentence, the commissioner has the power to grant parole, and the board is just making a recommendation, the board's not making the decision, it's making a recommendation. He's making the decision. He's He should have the final say. It's like, you know, you might not like it, but it's his power. He's been granted by that power by the courts. That makes it seem as if that's a really, I think that really is a good argument for Zuma. Um, and I'd, I'd been, part of the reason that I was interested in doing this was that I sort of had, you know, mainly it was about the principles and stuff, but I had that argument in mind. I thought, actually, the high court that said Zuma should go back to jail because the parole board should have the final say and Fraser doesn't really get a say. I thought that doesn't sound right. Because I looked at Section 75 and I looked at Section 79 and I wasn't sure, but there was room for doubt. And I thought if there's doubt in my mind as a layman, I don't know really what I'm talking about, but if there's doubt in my mind, uh, then maybe they should just defer to the executive. And and we have talked about this. Chevron deference is this sort of American term for the, for the idea, but we have the same thing here. Right. Where the courts are not supposed to second guess, they're trying to contain themselves. If the if a if an executive if a minister or a commissioner or a director general makes a call, um, the court can only overrule it if it's clearly crazy. Um, if it's sort of debatable, then you've got to stay out of it because politics means, you know, all of these decisions, so many of these decisions are going to be debatable. So many of these decisions are going to be like, well, I don't like it and I can tell you a story about why it's wrong. Every single decision that a minister makes, there's some academic out there who's a who's got a PhD and who can tell you why they think it's the wrong thing to do. You can't, on that basis, go to a court and then the court overrules what the executive <laughs> does, because yes. then you've just got uh, oh my rule by the a, court, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you can't vote those guys out. You know, at least we stand a chance of voting out the executive. So it's very important that kind of difference. And I thought on that basis we might be stuck with uh, okay. When you actually sit inside the court, then you see what the true story is. And it takes about four hours to get there. <laughs> oh, it's slow, 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 slow. Ah, slowness <laughs> of courts. But when they get there, it turns out it's all actually so obvious. It just doesn't get reported. After Shabir Sheikh had managed to hop out of prison on the basis that he had a, needed medical parole, because a private doctor, his doctor had said, no, my guy needs medical parole because uh, he's got a terminal illness. And then like three weeks later, he's playing golf and he's flying around and it becomes this national scandal. But there, but there is legally no way to put him back in because he, he actually did follow the letter of the law because the letter of the law said, all you need is one doctor, his own doctor, to say that I think my, uh, my um, patient would do better out of jail and for the prison boss to sort of give it a green light and say, well, I don't think he's dangerous or anything. And then the person gets out. So it's just obviously a huge, massive loophole. And it caused a scandal. And amazingly, there was a change. There was a, a change in the rules to address this. Wait, wait. Regulation. Are you that the rules yeah. were changed. The rules were changed. Isn't that a nice, isn't that a nice uh, change? Dude, <laughs> but how South African is it that in the that like we actually do make a good rule change? And 10 years later, no one can remember because no one reported on it because we live in a country where no one cares about the rules. They just care about the personalities. 
Right. There was right. this really good rule change, Rule 27A, in the regulations of the Correctional Services Act, changed to say, basically, dude, you can't be let out unless the Medical Parole Board says you can be let out. Simple as that. So it's never mind the 75, 79 thing that they talk about on the radio. It's 27 and not of the of the act, which is where they talk, but of the regulations. Anyway, so so those are three lessons to learn, um, which all counted against Zuma. Um, that being said, his 15-month sentence ends in October. And legally speaking, you serve a right sentence on. whether you're in jail or not in the usual sense of things. So the judgment's been reserved and uh, it'll probably come out after October or around that time. And then it won't really make a difference if they say that he's been still serving the sentence out of court, out of jail, uh, and that putting him back in would therefore count as punishing him twice. Um, and that would be a way to avoid any fears about another pseudo-insurrection. Um, and so it's tempting on that basis. I think it also legally has some weight to it, that argument. Of course, it, it comes down to, like, substantially in real terms. It's obviously so different to be in jail um, versus to be at home. And so you might say that substantially he's he's not had the punishment that he was supposed to have. Uh but technically, right. insofar as because, you're serving both ways. You, know, you, yeah. you, you can create a very kind of weird, um, uh, perverse incentive here where, you know, you're strongly incentivized to just drag out to do Stalingrad strategy in legal terms in a case like this to avoid getting in any trouble. Because um, then even if the court says, okay, no, you should have been in jail, you say, well, you know, time served, doesn't matter. And so you spent the time out of jail regardless of whether you should have been there or not. And so one of the curious things about our argument is that on the remedy, on whether, you know, let's say it's upheld that Zuma should never have been let out. The other, everyone else still has this problem of like, well, what do you do? Do you put him back? Do you not put him back? Time served or time not properly served? We have a different way of looking at this. And our way of looking at this, this is not an ordinary prison sentence. Um, this is this is a court order, and the court order doesn't turn him into a normal sentence defender. Um, instead, it's a very particular instruction, and that so you've got to read it on the instruction r rather than the general idea go to jail. It's the particular instruction. The instruction was he must be in prison for fifteen months. It didn't say he must serve a sentence. Uh, right. for a crime of 15 months, which is what it would usually say if it is a usual right. crime. But this is that special thing, contempt of court. It's not a civil thing. It's not a uh, uh, a criminal thing. It's a, a sui generis, the Latin right. people call it. It's, it's, it's the a, ultimate stopgap. Yes, it's the ultimate stopgap. And in that ultimate stopgap, you've got to stick to the letters that have been written down there. And they say 15 months in prison. So we've got the strongest argument, as it turns out, for the remedy being however long this takes for him to go back to jail. Now, my mother, who but Gabriel, he's been in an emotional this is, this, is very <laughs> is very angry with me for even remotely getting in the vicinity of making an argument that might put Zuma back in jail because we're worried about 
further insurrections and so on. And it is a real worry. Um, and the radio and the TV. I mean, my favorite TV interview, I was in court and this lady from Nigeria phones me. She's like, dude, I saw you in the background. I was watching the Zoom trial on SABC <laughs> and I saw you in the background there. You there? I was like, yeah. She's like, can we do an interview on Nigerian TV? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> that that is such a great i love that <laughs> dude and of course the first two radio stations that we talked about this on was like radio islam international and high fm so the muslim and the jewish radio station the ir man we're bringing we're always bringing worlds together that uh, <laughs> yeah. but they and they all worry about about another insurrection but but, but um I, I, you know, I maintain we we're really there to to just try and uphold the principle uh, that no one's supposed to be above the law or below the law. Um, so, yeah, it's exciting, and and there's there's like lots of other technical, interesting details. I'll just say this: in terms of how we were received by the court, we got a we got. A, a, a very bristling reception. It was like hugging a cactus. Our mm. our silk did not uh, sort of waft in and waft out on a cloud of perfumed uh, ambrosia. Why is that, dude? Do you, do you remember the neg? This idea that you like. You, if you want to get a girl's attention, you, you oh, yes, say yes. You, you you give them compliments, critical. Really compliments. Yeah, they're kind of like quite critical. Like uh, no, you say critical things that turn out to be kind of complimentary, but like you you criticize her to get her attention. I think that's what the court is doing. The court said the first <laughs> criticism was they said, "Listen, guys, I think what you're saying is very legal." Is this a very one of the justices said? This sounds like the kind of argument a lawyer would make. Yes. Uh, uh, and not- <laughs> uh, point of information. <laughs> and they were like, you know, like then they were talking about like a substance versus law difference. They were like, you know, Zoom is in jail. The other people are in jail. Aren't they all in jail the same way? So they should all go to the same parole board. We're like, no, nah, dude, a lot of people are in jail. Haven't even been sentenced yet. Haven't even been found guilty yet. They're like, they're awaiting their trial. You can't treat everyone the same. And the laws very clearly stipulate that the parole board is only applying to people that are not like Zuma, uh, people that have been found guilty of ordinary crimes. Um, in the same way, if I'm living in a house that I own or living in a flat and you're living in a flat that you rent and we're next to each other in the same building, like one of the justices was like, but wasn't he eating the same food, using the same toilet? Yeah, dude, we can be in the same building, like using the same I'm elevator, different spaces, using bro. the same gym, but like I own my flat and you're renting that's what the law is all about. Like, oh, you look the same. Also, I wanted to add, our counsel did not. She was Our counsel was a great counsel, not cheeky. I wanted to be very cheeky and be like, you know, Zoom is, not in, Zoom is at home unlawfully. You can imagine if Zuma had just testified, if he'd just gone to the Zonda Commission and testified about all that state capture and shown us where is the money, who is still corrupt that's in government, if he'd done all of that, he could also be at home. Substantially, it would be exactly the same. He'd be using the same toilet at home. He'd be eating the same food at home. Substantially, it would be right. the same. But legally, right. it would be opposite. Yeah. 
you wouldn't be causing a nightmare for the justice system. Uh, There's substantially that you're both not in jail, but in the one version, you're like you're you've broken the law, and the other one you're upholding them. And the and the but my favorite criticism from Justice Plaskett, Plankett, Plaskett. I keep thinking Plankett because he had like a bandage on his hand and he was the most gruff dude the whole day. And I kept thinking to myself, it's like he's it's like he's nailing points to the bench with the flat of his hand. And he's done it so much that like he's planked it and now he's got it. They've had to bandage his hand up. Anyway, <laughs> you're not allowed to say these things about the justice. Must show great respect. Well, I, anyway, I think they were all very wonderful. He said to us, uh, he he tried to nail us by saying, uh, he pointed to the bundles, the files of, of court record. And he said, look, there's thousands of pages here of arguments that have been brought by the DA, by the Helen Sisman Foundation, by AFRI Forum, by the government, by Jacob Zuma. There's been a previous court case. There's been this court case. We've been here all day. We've been deliberating all of this stuff for months, thousands of pages. And what you guys are saying <laughs> is that everyone is wrong. And we've all <laughs> wasted our time. And we could have just figured this out by paying attention to the law with 15 pages of argument. 15 pages just to realize. Yes. <laughs> he nailed it. He nailed it. <laughs> you got it in one. <laughs> Dude, this is all you have to say. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. You completely... Oh, oh okay. Well, then we, we see the rest of our time. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to save your time. I mean, their criticism was you guys are too smart, too legal, too efficient, uh, too concise, too much to the point, too helpful... And the, and the media that's reported on it, they were like, oh, the IRA was not welcomed by the, by the, 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 the judges were very unhappy with them. They were listening to the tone of voice, which was very critical, rather than the words, uh, which I think were really saying, hmm, interesting what you guys have done. I don't necessarily think they're going to decide on our basis. The last question was, Look, if we put Zuma back in jail, can we do it the other way? Do we have to do it your way? Can we do it the long way? Like we've read all of these papers. Can't we just use those arguments that we've been like stewing over for a long time? And we said, that's fine. Uh, if you want to do it the long way, do it the long way. <laughs> Dude, oh, court amazing. is amazing. It's so weird. It's so weirdly human. Like, it's also very clever and, like, very stressful and, like, ooh, you feel like, you know, the stakes are high. I mean, in a way that the whole idea of our civilization is at stake. I mean, the, the whole country exploded shortly yes. after the last time. So it is, it is, it, but at the same time, it's just human beings dressed up uh, in, a, in a room trying to talk it out. And there's some yeah. very human elements to it. And one of them is, like, We've had the conversation in one way for so long that we really don't feel like having it in another way. So, let's well, just... dude, this is this is exactly the the basis of the criticism of social media as a form of like public discourse. Um, but you can make a similar one of TV as well, which is that it just can so dehumanize people that you don't get this human flavor to events. 
Uh, and and I mean, it's that's the worst is on Twitter because you know you're arguing with someone who has a picture of like I don't know a cactus or something, and yeah. like a funny name, and then you just sit there spewing vile hatred and venom at them because you can't even imagine that this might be a human being. You just abstract them down to the three things you've just heard them say, which are all ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the worst version of their worst version of your worst version becomes a reflection chamber of. And in court, dude, half the time people are just trying not to yawn. They're like sort of covering their mouths while they like sneeze. It's just, it's just humans trying to yes. trying very very hard to seem reasonable and even be reasonable. Um, right. So that was great. And then my other adventure, much more briefly, was I. So I came back from Bloom, and um. My, the clutch of the company car exploded <laughs> uh, at the last traffic light. How did it explode, Gabriel? Were you drag racing again? I was. Uh, I was drag racing. Uh, no, apparently the axle. <laughs> apparently we've got a new clutch in there. Like it, it's only been on for six thousand kilometers, but the axle hadn't been greased properly, so it was getting. Oh, no. It wasn't. The teeth weren't. The, the the bearing around the axle wasn't sliding properly, and so the teeth took too much pressure and then it exploded the bearing but oh, no. it, everyone was safe i was going it was at the last traffic light going from first into second gear so i was going slowly and then and then i could just drive in second gear to the nearest mechanic i mean i thought about towing it anyway i didn't mess up the gear second gear is a great gear just to put it's choosing cool. gears here that's a it's a wonderful gear only one gear on a desert island second gear precisely yeah um and then I made it back, but I sort of overshot the mark and went all the way through Joburg to Pretoria to go to UNISA to go and be the only man in a women in dialogue panel uh, with UNISA, <laughs> the United Nations I'm, Women's how Association. How did you crack that one? <laughs> I don't know. They asked John Endress, our CEO, and, and, and I did it instead. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the security guard at the bottom was like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to that uh, that conference. He said, but you're a man, aren't you? And then I thought about, should, should I play with him? Because I've got a bit. <laughs> it's 2022, bro. Get work. <laughs> but I said, no, no, I said, I am a man. I think I'm a man. He said, but you are a man. I can see you're a man. I said, yeah, I'm a man. You're a man. He said, I'm a man. You're a man. Oh, we're both men. Yes, we got so excited about being men. He said, so why are you doing <laughs> I said, I don't know. They asked me to go. He said, it's very good. He said, yesterday, there were only two of you. Today, there's only going to be one. <laughs> you know, I just, oh, the, the temptation to behave badly. <laughs> there's many quips that one could have come up with in response to, to the mm. God's question there. <laughs> oh, well. And how was it? Well, I mean, I thought that, I thought that the, the, the talk that I was giving was sort of, um, the whole idea was that that the average security guard is so much wiser than the average academic. You know, I'm sitting there with the, the oh, you know, it's that's all professors and and you know the fact that he just would assume that I'm a man because I've got a beard and that some of the professors might uh, consider that to be like unwoke or something. I I, di I didn't underline the point. <laughs> I made a vague yes. gesture at it in the opening by by telling them the joke, by, by, by telling them the anecdote. Um, but it was the whole thing. It, I mean, dude, I, I was unhappy 
the three speakers before me, one of them, I'm sorry, again, I'm going to index by race. One of them was this old white lady who said things like, speaking as a white person, um, oh, I know that sometimes, uh, I, I think that the, dude, her line was. I think the moment anyone does like a kind of identity thing like that, I, speaking for everyone else who looks as right, it, it always just sets me off on edge. Like I immediately kind of roll my eyes and become a bristly porcupine. No, but this was one of the worst I've ever heard. She said that the the poor black people are conservative. Basically, poor, she said poor black people are not trying to cause a revolution because they are too busy trying to survive whereas the black middle class is the angriest group in south africa and that as a white person you must never criticize that anger you must just subject yourself to it and that she's been in these conferences where people say that looking at her uh they can they can never uh, trust her and she's guilty of all of the terrible things and 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 she basically agrees uh that's that's her uh, role I've, is to you know i've heard a version of this at many intros to academic conferences across the world yeah uh, particularly yeah, oh, yeah. when they deal with identity and yeah <sighs> I just thought it was more sharply put. I mean, it's like her value-add proposition is that she'll go into a room of wealthy black people and get them to be as angry as they can be at her and blaming and, like, using her as a lightning rod for all of their problems. And and she thinks that's good. That is that is <laughs> that is literally comparing yourself to Christ being sacrificed for the sins of the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean that whole, this sort of white savior meme, I'm not a fan of because sometimes it's used to say, like, here's a, you know, I don't know, uh, my friend in Harry Smith, you know, the town ran out of water. He flipping helped. He went and fixed it. Fixed the water pipes. And then they had, they had no water for six weeks. And then they had water. He did not do it alone. There were a lot of black people helping him. But the fact that he had some initiative and then he helped, you could say, oh, white savior complex. No, man, rubbish. That's just a way of saying, don't help. We must all help each other. We're human beings. But she is a white savior no, in the sense not. that the thing that she does to save someone is not to think of something or to fix a pipe. It's not physical or practical. It is racial. It's inherently racial. The value add proposition that she has is to give her white skin up for lashing. And right. like that she is, is the she is crucified for the sins of whiteness. Goodness gracious, man. Oh yeah, no. It, it hurts Ugh. it hurts my feelings. Dude, and then the speaker after that said that black people are genetically un irrational because of trauma. So this uh the moment you say that, I think you know on Wikipedia when you're reading an article. And then there's those little square brackets and it says citation needed. Dude, she had things on the PowerPoint. She was like, the amygdala, black professor, saying, the, you know, it's like so hard to think properly if you've been traumatized. Basically, she took PTSD. She took real scientific literature on PTSD. 
And now, if you've had PTSD and you have a triggering event, then you will become unreasonable. And then said that black people, I wrote the quote down somewhere, black people have PTSD in their DNA for centuries because the PTSD is so deep that it's not in your brain, it's in your DNA. And so what happens is when you are unreasonable like that, the other person must come and they must never criticize you. They must basically uh, supplicate themselves to you. Basically, she was saying, black people are genetically unreasonable and everyone else must so, be uh, sort of manipulatively subservient in order to, uh, for the next several centuries, in order to treat this this DNA PTSD. Dude, I felt, I, I felt in my stomach, I felt sick because I was sitting there in this thing and I knew that, 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 that people weren't thinking about it too hard and they were just, all they were actually taking away from it was, yeah, we're victims. That is... No, but, but also, also, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guarantee you that everyone in that audience had probably heard some version of that story before, yeah. probably at university. Yeah. Dude, I have, a, I have a question for you. And this is not really a question for you. It's a question for them. Do they actually believe that there can be such a thing as a multiracial society, as a society with people who live, different races live together? And yeah, I think if you ask them point blank... You know, some of them would say no, but most of them would probably say yes. No, of course, that, that that's the only way that you can have a society. Uh, society has to have people of different races and all that. We just have to learn how to live together better. But they make so many arguments where you're kind of left with the impression of how can, you know, you're left with the impression that a, that, that, that a part, some form of apartheid is the only policy solution because if – People of different races have to sort of interact on such skewed, you know, strange dimensions as, as these guys suggest. How can you possibly have a society where everyone lives together? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I, I think that there's a, there's a value gap here. In other words, from your set of values and my set of values, it does seem untenable. If the facts were, if it turned out to be the case, that people had DNA racial trauma. I mean, this is this is it's a hard thing to talk about. But like, I, I but you and I grew up in 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 uh, 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 families of excellence and non-racialism, right? Uh, so it was sort of easy going for us, um, and and I think probably for both of us, but maybe I'll just speak for myself. Sort of it. It created a, a backdrop from which it was easy to think quite far and quite courageously through the decision trees of like, well, what if the world was like this? Then would it make sense to be racist? Because that's what empathy requires or actually just logical analysis. If you are confronted by a text like Mein Kampf and you want to figure out where is it making mistakes, uh, you need to say what are the if-then clauses, and and where is there an if-then clause that's mistaken because the if is wrong, and you know, in other words, it says uh, if things were like this, then we should do that, but things aren't like this, so you shouldn't do that. And where is it wrong because no, things are like that, but your logical gap, your logical jump is wrong. 
In other words, where are their logical mistakes? Where are their factual mistakes? Uh, that's an empathetic exercise, actually, to to distinguish between logical and factual mistakes, insofar as it means looking through an if-then decision tree. So, if you look at this at the following, you can imagine a world in which there were a variety of sentient species that were uh, heavily competitive and that were congenitally right. <clears throat> opposed so to one another. As you, you, often you know, the framework in yeah. The framework you're setting up is actually very similar to the world of The Witcher. I don't know if you've come across it, where humans and elves are these two species that are very similar. They're both completely sort of you know sentient and, and, and functioning, but they cannot live together in peace. And that's one of the conclusions that you're forced to kind of draw from the book is that these two groups are just too sort of different at their core yeah. identities and their DNA even to, to live together. Irreconcilable. Right. Yeah. So, so, so I do think something like that you can imagine, um, and and then the question is, does that sound like this? It does. It's close, but I don't think it's the same. I think what these guys want or envisage is not a world of inevitable divorce, but rather a world of in, of of inescapable role play. So the non-racist thought is that at some is that it from time to time, starting with right now, often, uh, we can just act as if our races aren't important. Uh, so that's not to say that uh, we can act like that the whole day through. There might come to be moments where, for one reason or another, it's worth considering uh, different the significance of different races. And in a South African context, uh, for example, you if you look at income differences across races and you see, okay, well, black people overall earn twice as much as white people, but per capita um, earn less. The top 10 black percent earns three times more than the top 10 white percent, but per capita earns like three times less. What's going on? If you didn't know anything else, uh, you might infer backwards and you say, well, if you're earning less, it's because you're less productive. If you're less productive, maybe that's because you're less smart. And then you might think, oh, black people are stupider than white people. That's a kind of stupid, terrible, terrible mistake to make. And a way to uh, avoid making that mistake is to recognize the sins of apartheid and to see that a huge part of the reason that uh, 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 you have these asymmetries in income is as a result of the legacy uh, that remains right. unaddressed of the thing. So sometimes you have to consider races, indexes, effects in order to understand the world in a way that turns out to be non-racial, right? In a way that turns out to hold on to the thought right. that uh, we, we we can all get along and, uh, and avoid making uh, stupid assumptions so, about how smart someone is based on how they look. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess one of the ways that we truly differ from from these guys is, is and I think that role play thing that you said is exactly it is that we, you know, we're liberals and we believe that there should be we believe in in a certain sense in a in a, in a total egalitarianism of citizenship of human beings, and these guys actually really like hierarchy. They think the hierarchy should be moved around. It should be made into the form that that suits them. It should be. Uh, 
you know, it should be like a cast system where each each cast plays its role, and that's they will that you know they I don't think they consciously necessarily understand that um, that that's entirely they really totally consciously no they totally consciously understand no so, so, some of them some of them do like like this lady that you talked about definitely right, um, right but I think a lot of them kind of imagine a world where all of this cast role play ends up like the one that we like. Sure. I think that's also fair. They they think if only if like I made my talk and I managed to get the crowd to give me a round of applause. And by the way, um I didn't even have to say that I had a single mom personally, my lived experience. You know, it's women's month and it was a women's meeting and I was the only guy <laughs> I just want to give a shout out to all the honeys out there. Is that how you ended your speech? <laughs> <laughs> no. Y'all been a very good audience, <laughs> and then you give That's a fair. wink and you like do a finger gun at the audience. <laughs> I wasn't that bad, but I was kind of bad. I sort of said, "I I finished with a story about the voucher system, saying that we sh- we should let parents decide where their kids go to school rather than force them to go to public schools uh, of the government's running. You give them a voucher that costs the same as running a government school for one child." And then they can send it to any school. And so I finished with the line, trust the mothers. Because I really, dude, I trust, like not every mother's great. Uh, and every dude, child will. Yeah, well, they're yeah. better than the bureaucrats. <laughs> it just the is a better. Is, as it turns out, is better at making decisions for their child than the average bureaucrats. <laughs> that is a true statement. That is a, that, and facts and matter. One, and one that should be surprisingly uncontroversial, uh, that should be controver- uncontroversial, but kind of is sort of controversial if you should it's go emotionally, to certain, It's yeah. emotionally resonant. So this is the thing. is like the crown is starting out. They were like, they could see where I was coming from. I was like, guys, my speech was, you know, the black sheep. What is the black sheep of, of South African society? It is the South African people. We've heard all day how terrible are South African people. Oh, the South African people, they're so terrible. The white ones are all racist. Not all of them, but almost all of them are very, very racist. And the black ones are so traumatized, even in their DNA, that you, oh, they're, they're making they're, mistakes, they're yeah, stealing, they're, they're eating. They're, they're set to perpetual torment and victimhood as a you know, Inter, of the past. Intergenerational trauma. The South African people are the problem. That is why race relations are so terrible. People are saying the anger is very real. You can't, it's, that's the problem. What is the solution? Government is the solution. Okay. Let's go. Okay, but here's the other problem. Your government is a problem. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and if you, ask, if you ask someone, ah, oh, government's going to solve the problem tomorrow, then if you 90% of people will, ta- will, will, will know exactly what you mean. <laughs> right. When, when my dad likes to explain this point about, you know, because he would often, he is constituency for a while for the DA with Soweto West. And, you know, there was these kind of people who are, you know, curious about the DA or liberalism or something, and they'd come to branch meetings and they'd kind of be like, well, why shouldn't the government do this? And he would say, would you eat at a restaurant run by the government? And the yeah. answer was always no. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so it's not that great at a bunch of things. <laughs> we're going to serve you. We're going to serve you for tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll serve you. It's fine. You uh, pay I today. Think- one of my favorite lines from Pijol Rook uh, was, uh, you know, a communist society is where everything is designed by the post office, including the sleaze, because he was talking about a, yes. a communist um, strip club in Poland, I think it was. 
Dude, he's so good. I, oddly enough, I just bought a book by PJ O'Rourke. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've I've had that. I I've read. I think the first half of it. Uh, there's a great joke in there. He, he, Gabriel, for those who cannot see, um, held up Republican Party reptile, which is one of PJ O'Rourke's most famous. And um, there's a great line there where there's a there's an old grandma who doesn't want to say the Democrats in polite yes. company. It's right. She just refers know. to them as the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> In front of the children. She doesn't use the yes. word Democrats. Yeah, Democrats is too crass. So you say you'd rather call it the bastards. <laughs> Dude, and then when he became, like when he went to university, he became a Maoist, hardcore Marxist, like class revolutionary. And his grand at Christmas was like, Dude, I think you're going wrong. What's happening to you? Are you becoming a Democrat? And he said, no, 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 Grandma. <laughs> grandma, I'm, I'm so far beyond that. <laughs> I'm so far the Democrats and the Republicans, they're all terrible. LBJ, the Democratic president at the time, he's sending the American soldiers to go die in, in Vietnam. It's the whole American system is terrible. I'm not a Democrat, I'm a Maoist. I'm a communist. And she said, Oh, all right, then, as long as you're not a Democrat, <laughs> come have some more apple pie. <laughs> I, I actually have a t shirt I bought when I was 16 and first visited the US. Uh, which says on it, uh, friends don't let friends vote Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> That's very terrible. That's very anyway. Look, we we we. Um, there, there are all kinds of uh, interesting tribal factors at play here, but the, but the, the 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 thing about the kinds of intellectuals that gather up around an event like the UNISA UN Women's League annual conference that's been going since 2003 in solidarity with the women of the Congo who were suffering under a terrible war at the time, is that there is a... I think there is a kind of common understanding of what's at play and and there is a connection to to government institutions and so for me to go in there i like a lot of government but for me to go i'm i'm not really like pj O'Rourke in you know i'm not, i'm not a, right. I'm a red he's he's far more of a high flying loose libertarian what did he say um yeah. uh, one of the chapters of one of his books is called how to drive fast on coke while getting your wing wang squeezed yeah without <laughs> spilling a drink without spilling a drink there you go but uh, <laughs> otherwise it's very easy <laughs> i i but you know if it's so uh, going in there to make the argument that there should be a little bit less government and that we should um have non racial law it is a hostile environment but and people can tell, and people can tell that that you know I'm making it clear. I'm not hiding what my agenda is, and I can't hide my skin color and um, the implications of that. But if you say, trust the mothers, be serious. The 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 one of the biggest problem for women in this country is that most is that so many young women can't find jobs, and another terrible problem is that. The, the vast majority of young men don't have jobs. And as long as that remains the case, very few women are going to be safe on the streets. Um, because 
an ugly and dangerous thing is a young unemployed man. It is so. Right. I was in that position. It is a very antisocial position to be in, and it makes yeah. one angry. And and and, uh, and, and even anger, even worse when you don't have a and, yeah. even worse when you don't have a father figure um, in your life. Which I also didn't have. Which I didn't say. I could have totally gotten the crowd behind. <laughs> and yeah. but, but I didn't no, say that. But but I but I did men, say. Men, yeah, I think I think that crowd would have appreciated you saying you know men need to show up for fathership roles a bit more. Yeah, which I did say, and I, and I think and it, and that would and that would happen if more men had jobs. So how do you practically address that? You know, property rights, the voucher system for education, less government involvement. The the black sheep. Everyone says government's the solution. The people are the problem. It's their race trauma whatever attitudes that's from no the black sheep is the solution that's where the power lies that 80 percent of south africans are decent normal common sense people just give them a little bit of a chance to make their own decision things will be better off even in that crowd dude there was this amazing reluctant applause michael our colleague actually commented on it he, he watched the 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 thing on a live stream uh very generously and mentioned it and i and Anyway, it's nice to have that validation for the arguments that we work at, that you can go into, as as, 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 as Michael put it, like a kind of viper's nest, a kind of intellectual viper's nest. You know, the, not everyone, but most of the people there are sort of professional um, people in a, in, a, in, a, in a business, in a part of academia and think tankery that unfortunately has become tilted towards um, just sort of commercializing victimhood in a way that doesn't necessarily solve problems. Even there... A really good argument, like the argument that you should let parents have more decision power uh, over how their children participate in education, over, over public schooling. A powerful enough argument, even if it comes from a bearded, someone who looks like me, it's still good enough to to for 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 people to pay attention and to get enthusiastic mm. about it and people came to me after they were very excited and wanted to exchange so even, i'm very even, happy about that yeah no, i think i think in that audience uh, you know if you're a member of the pe pale penis people you definitely need to uh <laughs> that's a joke <laughs> <of conflict line. laughs> you, you need to you need to make a good argument if you want to be heard <laughs> that is terrible nicholas that is a terrible line. <laughs> uh, what was Jodo Goldberg always had a fantastic line. He he was the first. He went to some university where it had been single gendered, and he was among the first men who were allowed to go there. So he refers to himself as the Rosa Parks of gender integration. <laughs> <laughs> Which is <laughs> a very good line. Well, dude, I was I was at um, I was at St. Cynthia's Boys College, like you, and I was the first um, official liaison from the boys' college to the girls' college, um, because as a prefect, <laughs> as head of culture, I I insisted. I was like, we we're we are on the same campus. We have to um, hang out a little bit, and uh, yeah, I must. Say, I really but... think. The, the, it's a weird thing about that that school is that there was always this slightly unhealthy sort of rivalry between the two sides that often kind of I think had a I don't really know the origins of it was so I think that was probably a very good thing that you were trying to do there unfortunately it had not abated by the time I reached matric 
No, I mean, I no, I was kicked out of the first meeting I went to, and I, and I. Why am I, I not shocked? <laughs> I and I sat with the with the rector. You know, we had like a headmaster of the girls' college and the boys' college and the primary school, and then there was a rector who was supposed to preside over them all. And he came and sat with me, and he was like, "Dude, I know how you feel." I was like, kicked out of the meetings. <laughs> it's like you're theoretically above the headmistress. He's like, "Yeah." Yeah, oh, but <laughs> hold my beer. <laughs> Tough times. Look, it is it is complicated. I mean, part of the thing is that I I value the opportunity to go to the court and make a and participate and make a very interesting argument. In a way, I wish that I could go to the university and also make like an argument that feels like it's potentially at the cutting edge of intellectualism. Instead, I'm just like, guys, honest to goodness, the car guard downstairs is more wise than you are. That really is true because he understands that the way forward is not to try to expropriate without compensation. It's not to try and have quotas. Dude, the other winning line was like, I pointed out the true fact that black women at the Cape Bar and the Johannesburg Bar have been denied promotion explicitly on the basis that they were black women. That's a winning line against quotas. You have to tell people quotas, like, that's why I want to run the the anti-white quota thing, because we are getting to the stage where I'm against all quotas, but sometimes, and I think everyone, almost everyone's right. against all quotas, but they have to hear the particular one that opens, that unlocks their mind to understand right. why it's so stupid. Yeah, that it hurts everyone, not just the people who are supposedly supposed to be hurt by it. Yeah. There are these quotas that are helping white people now, that are helping you, that are punishing black women and helping white men. That is disgusting. And you can find a room that agrees. And then you can add to the sum <laughs> of anti quota uh, sentiment, which is important. <laughs> Get rid of quotas for white men. Get rid of quotas for, for white women. Get rid of quotas. For everyone. <laughs> for everyone. It's great. But it's but it's not it's not intellectually, it's not that complicated, you know. Like I kind of wish the at the university space there was a little bit more room for some of the more cunning for, for some of the harder questions. Because I do think the race issue is so simple. Um we have gotten to a place where we can safely drop all of the race laws and treat one another every moment that we can. Uh, regardless of race and and that'll be the best possible way forward that just that's just a no-brainer to me whereas the whereas the gender question is complicated i i like louis ck that stand-up comedian he had the line is like dude racism is just dumb whereas like the battle of the sexes is just inevitable like that is a thing that's going to be recreated generation to generation in interesting right. ways because because there's actual difference between yeah and woman. yeah yeah. And that's complicated. I wish, I wish uh, one day in my lifetime, I want to go to UNISA and have a follow up uh, where, where there are, where there are, instead of someone showing me uh, a, 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 a link to an article about post traumatic stress disorder and then saying every black person has that for centuries through their DNA, I don't want that. I don't want that rubbish. Because I'm, I'm, and I know enough neuroscience and uh, epigenetics and DNA, you know. Also, I know enough history, and like, if you're going to get into <laughs> centuries of trauma, oh my goodness! Like, 
Yeah, it's difficult go to, to Europe, find a, a, a go to Asia, have, go to until like five decades ago, a, a history of persistent trauma. Yeah, did I mean also? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, 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 I went to that. That building is like a spaceship. Unisa is built like a spaceship. It's beautiful. It's amazing, and and the. I think that there continue to be interesting questions about how genders should relate that I grapple with. Like at Synstidians, Boys College and Girls College, we were asked to, uh, as alumni, to weigh in on this question about whether the Girls College should be admitting a transgender student. And I felt like saying yes for the simple reason that, well, two reasons. One is that I think it's a I think it's a very scary experiment. I I am worried about the extent to which I'm worried about any child having like surgery based on a subjective thing because uh and I and I mean subjective with full respect. I, subjectivity is hugely important. I'm not one of those people who thinks that uh, how one conceives of oneself is is inconsequential. Um having grew up, you know, in in the bohemian world with the artsies um, I know that, like no, no one is a singer. People think of themselves as artists before they become artists. Uh, it's not like other jobs that you kind of slip into. There are there are some roles in life, and and I think the same is true for preachers. I think the same is true for certain kinds of missionaries, and 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 there the reverse is also true calling. as well. Which is if you if you think of yourself as completely unartistic. Then your your artistic skills atrophy, as mine yeah. have. <laughs> yeah. So so that's a, and you can build your whole life around the one or the other. So I really value that. Uh, how people conceive of themselves is deeply important. Um, and ideas about you know homophobia was, was continues to be it has has improved radically at our, at our old school sense. Homophobia has improved in the sense that there's much less of it attitudes have enlightened but never f f having said all that i worry about the surgery i worry about the permanence i worry about the, this and, that, and the data that i see on are very not encouraging but if anyone is going to be contributing to this experiment in south africa it should be a quality place with lots of resources so that's the first reason i think saints should be involved and the second reason is that Cistidians is already a gender bender school in the sense that it's a traditional boys' school that built a girls' college on its campus. So it's already in the business of doing these experiments. Um, and so if anyone's going to do the experiment, it should be a school that is that is closest to it. Um, so 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 there's my sense of encouragement for it, you know. But at the same time, I see in the Daily Friend we had this guy Ian McLeod, another old Saints boy, writing a piece about the terrible wokeism at Saints Girls College in the last week. Yeah, very that, long. That's the, that's the yeah. bit that sort of worries me is, you know, like what one individual child might want to do or not do. You know, that's a whole nother issue for parents and teachers and society. But it's the sort of ideological package that uh, so many who are, are trying to import into the school that turns people into having very strange conceptions of, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, of race for one. But of gender, of you know, work of virtue. That's really what worries me. 
Yeah, dude. I mean, imagine, like, if you think about that Unis room, what does it take to get to the point where a grown woman can stand on stage and say, effectively, my contribution to the world is that because I've got a white skin, I can go into a room of rich black people, explicitly in her, you know, rich black people, and they can be angry at me, and that's and that makes everything better. That's what makes the world good. That that require that that required a lot of effort. That's not a natural position to be in. Yes, it's uh, what and, you might call a learned a learned behavior. <laughs> yeah, and 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 my I read a textbook that they were throwing at at girls at the St. Stephen's Girls College uh, last year or two years ago in grade nine. That was trying to do. That was trying to achieve that. So that's not nice. It's not. It's not good. But and and funnily enough, you know the thing about the court. Dude, it's such a vindication of theatre. The fact that the justices have to wear robes. Hmm. They all have to <laughs> wear those black robes. Yeah, and everyone has to be, as you say, so incredibly respectful of the judge. And this is a good thing. Well, Dalian Porfer is not incredibly respectful. I mean, he's incredibly uh, Yeah, but, uh, well, uh, well, I mean, supposed to. Yeah, it, the, the operative. But the fact that they... Just the architecture, just the fact that you have the, you know, you're talking about hierarchies. The hierarchies that that we as classical liberals, we we as classical liberals believe in hierarchies. We just don't want race. But to be in certain contexts, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Judge, we don't want a blanket society. The judges are sitting high up there, and then the advocates standing low down there, and then even lower than that are the other ones at their tables, and then the galleries high, high, high on the other you, side. You know. You know who were the masters of this? Were the uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, as they're usually called. Hmm. They understood the majesty and importance of the theatre and of impressing on someone the, the the power. So you know, the Eastern Romans were constantly under attack from multiple directions because they were quite wealthy and they had a lot of enemies, and it was always a struggle for the thousand years that the on the Eastern Empire. They're on that, the, the, on yeah, the they're on that corridor, like where right. from Asia. They were in, Iraq Anatolia side. and the and Balkans, from, right? That was their yeah. territory. Um, and the only safe bit was the bit in the middle, and that was Constantinople. And this meant that they often had to, uh, shall we say, give people the impression that they could punch above their weight because they just were under so much pressure all the time. And so they created, for example, mechanical thrones that the emperor would sit on that would rise out of the ground, sort of, until it was like way above you. When you went to greet the emperor, you had to lie basically on your face, you know, prostrate yourself entirely um, before you could be granted an audience. And you were often given great gifts simply for visiting, um, regardless of whether you were a friend or an enemy, you'd be given this magnificent gift. And they'd also invested a lot in these phenomenal churches, Notable, most notable of which was the the Hagia Sophia, the the Church of Holy Wisdom, um, which is today, uh, well, which was made into a mosque and then became is today a museum, but it's been transported transformed by Erdogan back into a mosque. But anyway, let's not get into that. Um, <clears throat> and one of the reasons that the uh, early Rus peoples, the sort of Russo-Ukrainian type peoples, converted to Christianity, yeah. is that they they came into uh, as emissaries into the Church of Holy Wisdom. And it was such a magnificent structure that one of them 
uh, is quoted, I think, as saying, or wrote in an account, you know, it was as if we had entered the house of God himself on earth. Mm. Uh, and this manipulation of theater mm. was so vital to the empire, he arguably kept it going for 300 years longer than it otherwise should have lasted, just because they knew that giving people an impression, setting the stage correctly, as you mm. say, is really mm. important for creating the right environment. Did an empire glued together by th theater for three centuries longer than it otherwise would have survived? This is quite <laughs> <a thought. laughs> Indeed. And there's a reason why, even though it was essentially a ruined fishing village in the sh uh, 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 when it fell in 1453, it shocked the whole of Europe. Because mm. in the minds of Europe, it was still this magnificent mm. thing, this mm. great force, this pageantry. This is these are the heirs of Rome, and so you know it was very weak when it fell, and yet it created the shockwave through the whole of the Christian world that went, whoa, whoa, whoa! These Turks, we need to do something about that. Mm. So never underestimate the value of theatre. Yeah. It's crucial, man. It's totally crucial. And I and I think we have a knack for it. And I think that we we just need to apply it. I I I suspect that as part as part of the reason that I have um respect for the South African identity. Um so that I think it accommodates uh, a wonderful array. I mean, when I was in America there was very little doubt in any of the professors, theater professors that I hung out with mine, that in the 80s and 90s and, yeah, let's say the 80s and 90s, that South African theater was by far the most effective in the world at punching above its weight. It was intensely respected, not just because of, you know, there being theater, theater practitioners that were opposed to apartheid. Unfortunately, more recently, uh, our theatre, our actual theatre, like stage theatre, is often just simplistically repetitive in this sort of like anti-apartheid line. Uh, it's at its best, oddly enough, when it when it just takes old anti-apartheid plays and redoes them because the complexity is there. But when it writes new ones, like when some guy in 2015 is writing the anti-apartheid play set in 1985 it just doesn't work nearly as well as the actual 1985 play um but we there 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 is a great uh there is a greatness that i think obama connected to when he said in his first book uh, on returning from kenya to america that it is like time traveling that he'd gone from rural kenya to go and see his like brother the old old family house which is just basically like there's a mango tree and we hang out around the mango tree to like uh nairobi which was like you know felt like 70 years earlier than uh when he landed back in washington so he, he you know he felt like he traveled about 500 years from like 500 yeah. years ago to 70 years ago to today in 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 the space of three days i think that there's something to that and i think that um the the good side of it is a theatrical potential because yeah dude the the, the alacrity with which you can bring in um a byzantine analogy 
to what we're seeing or, 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 or rhyme across time uh, with the power of theatre in, in our courts today being analogous to what is going on in Constantinople in the 1200s. That's because there is something about theatre which is so simple. It's just humans in a room. That's what it is. Yeah. And th those two technologies haven't really been improved on. Two legs, two no, exactly. arms, generally speaking, four walls, a ceiling. You know, now and, you can use LEDs instead of a, you know, a water clock or something. But yeah. the, the, the idea, the theory is the same. <laughs> yeah, the basics are the same. And so when you live in a society where you can, where you can time travel centuries in a day physically, like you've got great theatrical potential and we have that. And if we, and if we, if we, if we, if we point that the right way, it'll be very good. But let me, shall I maybe quickly read by way of uh, segue a line from PJ O'Rourke? Um, Before you say segue, yes. I don't know if we have time to do a whole other topic. So we did have two topics planned plan for today, but it is an hour and 30 minutes in. And we've done a full and meaty rumination on everything from theatre to gender to Bloemfontein. <laughs> so <laughs> do you perhaps want to just uh, 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 say very yeah. briefly and then we can close up? Yeah, yeah. No, not, not, I'm not segueing very far. So... Yeah, I just saw this book that I remember Nick had once recommended, Republican Party Reptile by P.J. O'Rourke, where he sort of comes out as a very – he basically – this is the book where he says, you know, uh, the famous people that are left-wing – there are like famous left-wing comedians in his time, like in the 1980s, but there are no famous right-wing comedians. But it turns out he thinks the left-wing is very unfunny, generally speaking, and the right-wing is very funny. And I'm not anyway, just just grant the premise for a moment. I think that and, and this is the very essay in which he says, uh, Grandma, I said, uh, uh she was given to statements my grandmother was given to statements such as no one's ever so poor they can't pick up their yard. And she wouldn't even speak the word Democrat if there weren't if there were children in the room. She'd say <laughs> bastards instead. There we go. <laughs> I love the line, no one's ever so poor they can't pick up their yard. It's a very mm. strange line. I don't know what to make of that. It's like you can't if the poorer you are, the smaller your garden is. So if you're dirt poor, then you, you can pick up your whole garden. Is that what it means? I think I think it means that there's a level of sort of basic decency out there that doesn't matter how terrible your circumstances are, you can maintain it. And yeah. you know, in Africa, we have a different version of it. It's the Zambian, uh, 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 you know, uh, guy who's, who has a job earning almost nothing. You know, the kind of thing where moving rocks in the Karoo doesn't matter, whatever it is. Yeah. But he will show up, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's in a hotel. Maybe he's like the guy who greets people to buy a hotel. Yeah. He will bicycle to work through the tropical heat in a suit. And he will arrive and he will remain immaculately dressed for his entire shift until he goes home. Because... Polite and courteous. Right. Because for him, that, that, uh, that suit and everything is what he expects of himself. This is what it means to be a proper person. Yeah. And he will go back home to his village where, you know, like 
he's the only person maybe with education in the whole village and life is really difficult and they have to grow crops, you know, when he can't support the family with his small wage. But he yeah. still maintains that level. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you find that all over the world, but in, in Africa, that's our particular version of it where I think it's easiest to see. Dude, and I... Okay, so there's... Yeah, in praise of theatre and exactly at that point, theater, a, a certain tradition of theatre and they, and they all end up uh, intertwining and blending together. But it's, uh, uh, once, once humans have the ability to travel and interconnect, but a certain tradition of theatre really begins in ancient Athens and really begins in Thebes with, with uh, Homer, who sort of, you know, as it has it, be it a person or a, or a group, um, produces an oral history, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which, which later gets written down and then later inspires Euripides, Aeschylus, and Sophocles, and those guys to, to, to theatrical performance. And my visit to Thebes a decade ago left me with the starkest impression of civilization and barbarity and the wilderness being separated by a three rocks thick wall that's only about a meter and a half high. If you were ostracized from Thebes, if you were kicked out of Thebes, you were walking across a plain as desolate as like half of the Northwest, you know, just like ugly terrain, like there just enough bookies around that there's definitely lions around that are going to eat you. Um, but and it, there it were is lions in, in ancient Greece. It's worth yeah. remembering the Eurasian yeah. lion. Yeah, that's why that's why Heracles Hercules uh, wore a lion over his thing. It's uh, it was uh, you, you know here you are with the family around the fire, and and not only do you have a fire, you have Sophocles, you have poetry of the most intense and beautiful sort. You have democracy. You have uh, the idea of voting and of recording laws. And over there, you have a lion and you have 100 kilometers to go before the next drop of water. And that's all you have. You know, it's like there when when times are really tough. Things like the suit, things like tying your sandals, things like remembering that that rhyming couplet that encapsulates some kind of uh, motto or timeless truth those those human artificial qualities artificiality plastic sounds so cheap when you when you live in the middle of a big city but a plastic water bottle in ancient greece or or its equivalent uh whether it's literally like a, a bladder of an animal that's been cleaned and is now storing water artificially or or is a bit of poetry or is a bit of clothing i mean those things really shine up for their human value for in in that in that kind of space so theater yeah theater theater on the edge theater on the frontier um this is where we're at and it's and and we have to perform our way we have to act our way into <laughs> a more civilized state of being and uh and so i want to read an absolutely theatrical bit of writing coming from pj o'rourke where he says some mad things um, but, 
and I want to read it out because I think because I think it's kind of fun. Um, it's a it's a it's a page, so I don't know, two minutes, three minutes, something like that. He says, you know, after dissing the, you know, reflecting on how terrible life is in Cuba at the time. So I'm a conservative. What else could I be? However, I'm not completely happy about it. Let's face it. Conservatives can be buttheads too. There are the reborn Jesus creeps, for instance. We should do to these what the conservative Romans did with lions. But even regular country club Republicans can be stuffy about some things. Dope smuggling, for example, and mixing quaaludes in your scotch and putting your stereo speakers in the roof of your house and turning up the volume all the way and playing Parliament of Funk at 3 a.m. I want to do all of those things. So what I'd really like is a new label. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who feel the same way. We are the Republican Party reptiles. We look like Republicans and think like conservatives, but we drive a lot faster and keep vibrators and baby oil and a video camera behind the stack of sweaters in the bedroom closet shelf. I think our agenda is clear. We are opposed to government spending, Kennedy kids, seatbelt laws, being a pussy about nuclear power, bussing our children <laughs> anywhere other than Yale, trailer courts near our vacation homes, Gary Hart, I'm a fan of Gary Hart, all tiny third world countries that don't have banking secrecy laws, <clears throat> aerobics, the UN, taxation without tax loopholes, and jewelry on men. We are in favor of. <laughs> Dude, he's a madman. We are in favor of guns, drugs, fast cars, free love if our wives don't find out, a sound dollar, cleaner environment, poor people should cut it out with the graffiti, a strong military with spiffy uniforms. Nastasia Kinski, Star Wars, and anything else that scares the Ruskies. Referring, I suppose, to Star Wars, the... Uh, the uh, uh, what's it called? STIs, Satellites, the Missile Defense Initiative, whatever it's called. Yeah. And a firm stand on the Middle East. Raise buildings, burn crops, plow the earth with salt, and sell the population into bondage. <laughs> there are thousands... <laughs> this is completely bad. There are thousands of people in America who feel this way, especially after three or four drinks. If all of us would unite and work together, we could give this country, well, a real bad hangover. <laughs> now there's a political platform. <laughs> Dude, I love that. I love that. It's, he, you know, it's, this comes at the end of this sort of four-page buildup where he starts out sounding, he does this classic rhetorical thing. If he starts out sounding quite reasonable, quite funny... But eventually he becomes more and more mad and he's just saying things that are clearly wrong and clearly untrue and like contrasting these teams and like we're for this, we're against that and like you should be against half the things he's for and you're for half the things he's against. But it, but they kind of do fit into a realm of you can understand how the teams work. And I and I just, I read this today after, after being there at the UNISA thing, being in the court and I'm thinking, how often it is that when people make public speeches or people write, like that they're trying to they're trying to they're trying to like get to that conclusion. If only we all agreed, there are thousands of people, there are thousands who 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 think the same thing. And if all of us would unite and work together, you know, then Oh, then it'll be okay. It's like, nah, dude. Then we just 
<laughs> of course, everyone to have a massive hangover. <laughs> we just have a great party. What we would have is one fabulous jaw. We would have a jaw, you know, and don't confuse politics with the jaw. Like, go ahead and like try and get us all in the mood for feeling togetherness, whether it's Tiesto or Armin Van Buren or Bob Marley or the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, Lincoln Park, Middle, whatever. Dude, yes. We like to feel togetherness and like our emotions are somehow synced up. But the next morning's a hangover. Politics really should, in a sense, be something different. And I think it's his way of, of undermining himself. And I respect that. Of of saying, you know, he's got his plat he's he he is gonna try and make some a pitch, but that his deepest pitch is please don't agree with me. Please don't agree with me for the sake of an emotional quality that's going to get you married to a political thing that doesn't actually work. If you agree with me, it should be about the stuff that's not causing a hangover. It should be about like, you know, what works. Um, hmm. And if you're going to have fun with me, that's another story. And we're going to end up doing both together because time is finite. Emotions and thoughts coincide in the kinds of brains that we have. And so there's always a bit of both going involved. Uh, but be mindful of that and be wary of that. Be, I, I, I've got great respect for the speaker who, who doesn't aim at an emotional climax when the point is to try and, 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 uh, and enliven political debate because it's actually fundamentally anticlimactic. Like, Politics is deeply anticlimactic. And that's my segue to Nicholas Lorimer's Daily Friend piece, which is my recommendation for the week. Oh, thank you. And it's a great, it's a great argument for the anticlimax. Uh, it's like people don't 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 give up on South Africa. Don't you dare give up now. We are we're still working at it, and uh, we've made very real progress in the last few years. Um uh, fought back many great challenges, and by we, I mean you know just generally people who want better growth opportunities and and more freedoms. But there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of triumphalism. There's a kind of early onset Obamas. The thing that was the scariest, saddest about Obama, I don't even think it was his fault. It was like people thinking Obama's going to be elected after George Bush. Suddenly, America is going to be perfect. Like, you cannot think that if we get a different party in 2024, 2029, that things are going to be perfect. You cannot think that tomorrow is going to be perfect. Uh, you cannot think that any one thing is going to solve all of the things. So, uh, under see how you undermine yourself. Uh, see how how complicated things are. And that, and that real progress takes years of work. So, this is why I sometimes refer to myself as politically conservative. Uh, or a conservative liberal, which um, for sort of non-political science major Americans seems to always be a little bit weird thing to say. But uh, because I do, I do enjoy pouring cold water sometimes on uh, on anything that's too exciting, <laughs> and that's kind of what that piece was an attempt to do. <laughs> and I think temperamentally, I probably try. I, I probably am inclined towards the excitement. And you're inclined uh, towards the, eh, 
it'll be fine. Or it won't be fine. But whatever it is, it's not going to be like the beginning or the end. It's just going to be the middle. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so my recommendation is an article I sent to, uh, to Gabriel. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet, but uh, I'll recommend it also to our audience. And this is called, it's by uh, Zaria Masani, um, who has some pretty controversial views on, <laughs> on the history of India. Uh, but he wrote a, 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 an interesting article for The Spectator called <clears throat> Partition Wasn't Inevitable. And he, he blames three people, Clement Attlee, more Lord Mountbatten, and the first uh, Prime Minister of India, Nehru, for um, essentially creating Pakistan and Bangladesh, and that this was a bad thing, uh, and that India could have been in a much better place if these guys hadn't made a number of crucial mistakes uh, in, the, in the decolonization of India. And it's quite an interesting one, particularly because there's also some weird personal details, like the fact that it's very possible that uh, Martin Batten was encouraging an affair between his wife and Nehru because he was kind of thought it was it was like so cute, <laughs> which is the most aristocratic English thing. <laughs> they didn't put that in the movie. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, um, but also how they isolated the head of the, the Muslim League who went on to, to kind of form Pakistan. Um, mm. A guy who later very much regretted uh, the, the creation of Pakistan in many ways because he thought that it, it was a bit of a disaster, which it was, because yeah. uh, hundreds of thousands of people got killed. And um, I've talked about this in other episodes before, but I really think that in terms of the role it plays on the world stage, Pakistan is a profoundly negative influence. And uh, as part of India, probably would have exerted a much more positive influence. I also think India would probably be better off because, um, you know, one of the threats to India becoming the the sort of true liberal democracy that, uh, that I think it has the potential to be is the fact that it has this Hindu nationalist problem. Um, it's got a kind of, it's actually, I, I'm rem every time I read like the statements of Hindu nationalist politicians, they sound a lot like the kind of black nationalists in South Africa. They, they have a similar sort of very like stripped out view of history where the story is us great, them terrible. Uh, the, the story is always how we achieved everything. They are the thing holding us back. And uh, if we simply unite together as one force, we can break the chains. And I, I, I wonder if, if, and this guy suggests in this piece, that uh, that force may not have been so uh, powerful. He implies that uh, if, 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 you know, there had been more Muslims in India because they would have had to work together more. But anyway, uh, that's a topic for a whole other day. And uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, and as always... Keep the flag of liberty flying.